You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone. And welcome to History of the Great War, episode 94. This week, a big thank you goes out to Patrick for choosing to support the podcast on Patreon over at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. Thanks for being awesome, Patrick. And also, thank you to Jeff for sending over a source I never would have found on my own on British signals intelligence during the war. This is the second time that Jeff has come through with a seemingly pretty random source that's going to be really useful. So thank you, Jeff. Today we continue our story of the attacks during the Battle of the Somme on the 1st of July 1916. We continue our journey south by looking at the attacks of the 3rd and 15th Corps of the 4th Army in their attacks from just north of the village of Oliver to just north of the village of Mametz. Also, I highly recommend anybody who hasn't to head over to the website at historyofthegreatwar.com to check out some of the maps that I have been providing with these episodes. I probably should have been pointing these out a little earlier, but it's never too late to go look at a map, so it's highly recommended. It would be in this area of the front that the British would start seeing some real gains from their efforts put into this attack. Up to this point, our story has been all about the British just beating their heads against the wall that was the German lines and throwing men at the defenders, without really having anything to show for it. From here on out, though, that narrative changes, and the British will start to actually take and hold some positions. All of these gains would be less than hoped, there's no doubt about it, and they would still pay dearly for them, but there would be actual square yards of enemy territory taken by the attacks. Because of this, our story will undergo what I think is an important change, from why did the attacks not succeed at all, to why did they not succeed as much as planned. I also get the feeling that as we move south, there is generally less knowledge about what happened. There is generally a lot of discussion about where the British failed completely, but then by the time you get to the French or the southern British couple of corps, they, there's often very little in English language accounts. One more thing before I get going today. Consider this your four-week warning to get questions into the episode 100 question and answer spectacular. You can contact me on any of the various social platforms the podcast is on, 
or you can just be more direct and email your questions to History of the Great War at Outlook.com. Oh, and I have some thoughts about doing some charity things over the next few months. So if anybody knows any really great international or large-scale charities relating to the war, please let me know. We start our story today with the attack of the Third Corps. The task of the Third Corps was a tough one, with the goal of pushing through the German positions just south of Poger and then through the village Valaver. After they had accomplished this task, they would then push through the German second positions between Contramasson and the Mackay Farm. You can forget those last two place names, though. That's the last time that I'll be talking about them today. The two divisions of the Third Corps were the 8th and the 34th, and there were two types of reasons that the position for their attacks was problematic, and the first set of problems was strictly geographical. The first of these geographical problems was that the positions of the British, where they would be starting the day from, were overwatched by the Germans on the Thiepville Ridge. This would allow them a commanding position against any attack, an attack that could not in any way surprise them. This position would be even more commanding if the attack of the 10th Corps to the north did not meet their objectives, and we already know that those attacks did not go as planned. The second geographical problem was due to the fact that no man's land was extremely wide, In some areas, it would be 800 yards wide, which is about 730 meters for those of you in the world outside of the United States or whatever other tiny country uses the imperial system at this point. This is an absurd width of area that the British troops would have to try and advance over while being under fire from the defenders. On top of these two geographical problems was the fact that the British themselves was just making everything more difficult for the two divisions. The first way that they did this was by sending every drop of strength from the two divisions forward in the first attack. All six brigades that they had at the front would be involved in the opening attacks or closely following it all up. This gave them no ability to react to any setbacks or even any successes. The second problem was, and what I am sure you are getting really tired of hearing, their plans for the artillery, especially the heavy guns. Last episode and the episode before that, we talked a lot about the problems that the British attacks experienced when the artillery moved off the German first line right before the infantry started their attack. In front of the Third Corps, they took this mistake to a whole new level. The plan was to not even wait for the infantry to attack, but to instead move all of the heavy artillery off of the first German line an entire 30 minutes before the attack started leaving only the lighter guns to fire on the German lines to try and keep their heads down while the infantry went forward. All four of these problems, two of them intrinsic to the area of the attack and two created by the British themselves, would compound on each other to make the situation for all of the infantry basically impossible. The 8th Division probably had it worse, though, since they were in the more difficult position. It was on their part of the front that no man's land was the widest, and they would be advancing up Mash Valley, and if either attack on their flanks failed, they would be advancing up that valley like fish in a barrel. Their commander even took the steps to try and get his attack delayed slightly, just to make sure the positions on the flanks were taken care of before him and his men went forward, but this request was denied almost out of hand. Everybody had to go forward at the same time. On the bright side... 
If somehow the infantry of the Third Corps was successful in their attack, there were cavalry units just waiting to capitalize on it by moving forward. I think it's probably pretty clear at this point, though, that this cavalry would not have much to do on July the 1st. When the time came for the attack, the 8th Division experienced nothing but a series of failures. The men had been told that there would be no need for this, these short rushes and getting down on your stomach. Just go straight over, as if you were on parade. And just like at every other point before, this faith in the artillery was ill-placed. The men went forward with as much bravery as they did anywhere else, but there was simply nothing that could really be done. Most of the men only got a few steps before they were forced to either seek cover or be hit by German fire. Reinforcements followed up closely behind the first waves, but experienced pretty much the same problems. Throughout the entire day, more and more British troops of the 8th Division would try to go forward to reinforce those that they thought were in front of them. They, of course, did not fully realize that so many in front of them had already fallen. Here's a quote from one of the men who tried to go forward in the later waves. Quote, It was impossible to stand at all in no man's land, and the battalion crawled forward on hands and knees to help the battalions in front. End quote. All through the day, British observers behind the front tried to figure out what was happening in front of them, pretty much to no avail. All they could really see was a confusing mass of smoke and explosions, as German artillery blanketed the area between the lines. They were straining to try and see some sort of evidence that the British troops had gotten forward and taken the first set of German trenches, but this evidence was not to be found because they hadn't. While the least fortunate were always those soldiers who were killed, close behind them were those that were wounded and found themselves stuck between the trenches. These men, like Private Ernest Dayton, found themselves in an unenviable position. They were often wounded to the point where they could not easily move forward or back, and especially when they were injured early in the day, their only choice was to try and wait it out in no man's land, trying not to draw attention to themselves until it got dark. Here is Private Dayton of the King's Own Light Infantry discussing his ordeal after he had been injured early in the attack and found himself several hours later stuck in a shell hole with four others, all of which were in a similar state. He recalled his feelings as night began to fall on July the 1st. Quote, When night came, I was in a deuce of a state. I must have been fainting off and on, what with the loss of blood. You'd no idea of the passage of time. I didn't know where I was. I only knew there were Germans in front and Germans behind, and I had no idea which way the British lines were. What with having nothing to eat and nothing to drink all day, my tongue was getting as big as two, and I could hardly close my mouth. What worried me was getting caught in our own shell fire. I bothered more about that. End quote. There are stories similar to Private Dayton's all along the front of men being stuck in the danger zone of no man's land all throughout the day, unable to move, but the entire time in pain or in a daze, sometimes drifting off and passing out without any knowledge of whether or not they would wake up on the other side. Some were lucky enough to make it to nightfall, at which point they had a better chance of finding their way back to safety. Many do not survive that long.
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The 34th Division was another of the new Army divisions being used for the attack, and their job was to try and capture the Labasel salient. The plan was to send the division forward in four columns to close in on their objectives from several different directions. Much like in other places, the troops were assured that the artillery had done all the hard work and the village that they had to capture had been completely destroyed. When they began to move forward, once again the German dugouts and defenses were not at all destroyed and were in quite a good state. However, in this area, like some others, the artillery was not the only tool that the British had to deal with the German positions. They had also put a large amount of effort into the creation of two mines. These were, these were called Wysap Mine, which had 40,000 pounds of explosives, and another called Lochnagar, or Schwabenho, which had 60,000 pounds of explosives. So they're really not messing around here. These are very large mines that are really going to go boom. The large mine was set under the Schwabenho Redoubt, not to be confused with the Schwaben Redoubt that we discussed last week. The Wysap Mine was positioned to help the 102nd Tyneside Irish, who had to advance up the very dangerous Mash Valley. Private Harry Bomber of the 101st of the 34th Division had a great view of what happened when the Wysap Mine exploded. Quote, the mine went up, and the trenches simply rocked like a boat. We seemed to be very close to it, and looked in awe as great pieces of earth as big as coal wagons were blasted skywards to hurdle and roll, and then start to scream back all around us. A great geyser of mud, chalk, and flame had risen and subsided before our gaze and man had created it. I vividly recall, as the barrage lifted temporarily, and there was just the slightest pause in the torment, several skylarks were singing. Incredible. End quote. The crater from the explosion was somewhere around 270 feet wide and 70 feet deep. Unfortunately for the British infantry, while these mine explosions were impressive and they probably did a good job of boosting morale, they did not solve all of their problems. For the Wysap mine, the Germans had some foreknowledge of what was going to happen and used that to evacuate the area before the mine exploded, avoiding almost all of the possibly harmful side effects like, you know, being destroyed by a giant mine. The mine under the Schwabenho Redoubt did cause some damage, but it did not completely put the German positions in the area out of commission. For the Tyneside Irish, they would still have to cross the wide-open areas of Mash Valley, regardless of how well the mines worked or how well they didn't work, even if they would have known. This involved trying to dodge German fire from the left flank and the right flank, which became especially hard when the attacks on the left flank just completely failed. This was the attacks of the 8th Division that we discussed last week. All along the 34th Division's front, the men who went forward found themselves in an unwelcoming environment. 
Here's Private Bomber again, as he describes what happened when he tried to move forward with his unit. Quote, it was akin to striding into a hailstorm, and the further you went, the less and less became your comrades. Jerry had not been obliterated, his wire had not been destroyed, and we had been called upon to walk across 800 yards of no man's land into hell, a far cry from the walkover that we had been promised. End quote. Regardless of the fire, at a few different places, the attackers were able to get across no man's land and start taking some of the German positions. But even in the easiest areas, like those around the mine craters, it was still no cakewalk. Here's Lieutenant A. Dickinson to discuss. Quote, When we arrived at the crater, our orders were to man the top around the lip of the crater. Of course, the Germans soon played their machine guns on that lip, and the first one would get through the head and roll down. Then another one after would roll down into that bottom, which tapered down to a point. It was still hot as an oven after just being blown up. End quote. It soon became apparent that some huge lunge through the German lines was not going to happen. However, unlike in other areas, this did not mean that there were not real gains being made. This was especially true on the far right of the 34th Division's area of the front. Here, real progress of consequence was made, which I believe is our first to discuss in any of these some episodes. Unfortunately for the men who were able to make these gains, it was against extremely difficult to try and get reinforcements and supplies to them in any way. All through the day and into the night, they held their newly won ground pretty much by themselves. Throughout all of the afternoon, evening, and night, officers worked hard to make sure that the men held on to their gains and made sure they spent whatever energy they had digging in and trying to get ready to repel counterattacks. Miraculously, they were able to meet up with the advance units of the 21st Division on their right, which was a great omen for longer-term stability and success. The 21st Division is one we'll talk about here in just a second. While these gains were being made, that did not mean that for both the 34th and the 8th Division, July 1st was not a horrible failure. Total casualties for the day were 6,380 for the 34th and 5,121 for the 8th. The casualties for the 34th were, I believe, the highest of any single division on July the 1st, and unfortunately it was due to their success that they experienced so many of these losses. It was here once again true that the units who achieved a little success were far worse off than those that had simply been checked at the start line. To the south of the 3rd Corps was the 15th Corps under the command of Lieutenant General Henry Horn. He and his troops faced two more important spurs running down the Poger Ridge, those being of Freecourt and Metz, with villages of those same names on top of them. These two villages had been turned into fortresses by the German defenders, with a series of deep dugouts and well-developed sets of trenches to keep everything together. However, it was very apparent that the defenses in this area were not as robust or strong as those further north. This would not have been enough for the British to succeed, though. The positions were not that weak. But when combined with a few advantages that the 15th Corps had that other units to the north did not, well, good results would follow. The first advantage for the British was simply in the terrain. The German positions were, e were generally lower on the forward slopes of the ridge in this area, 
This combined with the fact that the British had a pretty good rise behind their lines, giving them much better vision of the Germans than at any point to the north. The lines were also far closer together on this part of the front, making it safer and quicker for the infantry to attack and, more importantly, for reinforcements to reach them. Another factor in the Brits' favor was the fact that the bombardment in this area had been far more effective than in other areas, and in fact, the preliminary bombardment had caused a good amount of havoc among the German defenders. There had also been a far more concerted focus on counter-battery fire from the artillery of the 15th Corps. This focus was combined with the fact that the 13th Corps and the French to their south also put a far greater focus on the use of counter-battery fire to give the German artillery all along the front from here to the south a pretty good beating. This would not make the attack easy, but it would make it possible, at least over the first series of objectives. And these first objectives were for the 21st Division, the capture of Free Corps on the left, and for the 7th Division on the right to move against Mametz. On the north side of the attack near Free Corps, a good gauge of how well the British attack went for a specific unit was simply to look at how far away they were from Free Corps itself. In general, the units that were attacking directly against the village were in for a very rough time but the further away from the town the unit was, the better off they were. Most of this revolved around the amount of machine guns in and around Free Corps, and the areas of the front that they focused on. On the far left of the 15th Corps' front, two of the brigades were able to push into the German lines, even though they were under fire from both Free Corps and from the German positions to the north. On the right of Free Corps, the 22nd Brigade was able to make it both forward and then into Free Corps itself, although it would be unable to fully hold on to its gains inside the village. Already you can see that this is going a bit better than to the north. The real gains, though, came from the right side of the front and the 7th Division. Here the British attacks quickly began to gain momentum and make real progress. By the middle of the afternoon, the village of Mametz itself was fully secured by the British, and the men had been able to advance just beyond it to establish a new defensive line. This was a huge accomplishment. For these gains, the 21st Division had suffered 4,256 casualties, and the 7th had lost just 3,380. This is a great example of how important counter-battery fire was during these battles. Because it was given such a greater focus by the units in this area of the front and to the south of it, not only were gains easier to secure, but reinforcements and supplies were actually able to have even the smallest chance of getting forward. Sure, there were other mitigating factors, like the German line in this area being weak or maybe placed less optimally, or maybe the geography was just not as good for the defense. However, if you look at the gains made on July the 1st, they almost directly correlate with the focus and effectiveness of the counter-battery fire on that specific area of the front. The 15th Corps' advance was mostly hindered by the strong German positions to the north that all of the other attacks had failed to deal with. But as we continue to move south next week, you'll notice that the gains will become a lot more, and it was because of the efforts of the 15th Corps that this was all possible. They started the trend of pushing further in, and as we move south, it will continue. So, as we talk about the great gains of the 13th Corps and the French next week, remember the 15th and their role in opening that door.